0: Good morning, my name is John Newton. I have the privilege to serve as the rector of St. Michael's Episcopal Church. This is the first episode of a limited podcast series talking about one of the cornerstones of the Episcopal Church's identity, the Book of Common Prayer. We have one in every pew here at St. Michael's, and I'm sure that's the case at most Episcopal churches. It contains almost every answer to any question that could be asked about who we are as a church body, and even the prospect of changing what it says is enough to start decades-long debates between church leaders. However, despite its very apparent importance in our worship life, I find that it's often the case that many people, from cradle Episcopalians to aspiring and newly minted ones, don't know much about the actual contents of the book or why it occupies the position of influence that it does. This assessment isn't a value judgment. After all, clergy such as myself have dedicated seminary courses teaching us the BCP, and it would not be a reasonable expectation for every layperson to spend the same amount of time and resources into learning about the Book of Common Prayer to that extent, so, this podcast was conceived as an attempt to package that information in a more accessible format and to expand our church wide mission of welcoming everybody by making the BCP a little less of a mystery. The Book of Common Prayer isn't a font of privileged information only available to the initiated, it's a primer of common life and common worship for the church. It's right in the name Common Prayer. So join me for the next five weeks as we take a tour through the history, structure, content, and theology of the Book of Common Prayer. In today's episode, we begin in the place most would think to begin, the beginning but pinpointing the beginning of the history of the BCP isn't as simple as one might expect. Of course, there is the obvious marker of the creation of the first version of the Book of Common Prayer by Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Cramner in 1549, but that leaves us with the question of, What business does an Archbishop of Canterbury have in writing such a document, and why Canterbury? And why in 1549? So we can go back a bit further and talk about the infamous King of England, Henry VIII, and his feud with the Pope over divorce, or more accurately, marriage annulments, which we'll get into shortly. But could a king really enforce such a top-down restructuring of the church and an entire nation without facing a revolt? And if so, why didn't we see other kings do the same thing in continental Europe? The Reformation occurred right around the same time, but that was a much more democratic movement that came from the bottom up and was often met with resistance from kings, rulers, and religious leaders in those nations, what made England such a fertile ground for this kind of top-to-bottom rejection of the Roman Catholic Church's authority? The history of the BCP is, in many ways, the history of the Church of England, the predecessor to what we now call the Anglican tradition or the Anglican Church. Anglican is derived from the Latin word for England. It was through the British colonization of America that the Episcopal Church was formed, so while it may seem out of place to talk about ancient history, medieval kings and queens and wars and popes, without that background knowledge, it'd be hard to explain why things in the red books in our pews are the way that they are. So in this first episode, we'll be taking a tour of a very simplified history of Christianity in the British Isles to understand the context of why the Book of Common Prayer and the Anglican Church in general came to exist as an entity separate from the Roman Catholic Church. Our tour begins with the withdrawal of the Roman legions from the province of Britannia in the year 410 the invading Anglo-Saxon kings settled into the southern parts of Great Britain, leaving the Christian population in the north and west that's modern-day Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, by the way, geographically isolated from the rest of continental Europe, and by extension, Rome. Most of the religious guidance for these communities that remained came from monasteries and Irish missionaries and less so from bishops in the more formal hierarchy of Rome. It was against this background that Pope Gregory I decided to send a mission in the year 595 to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity and to bring the Church and the Isles back into the fold. The timing of this mission was in part due to the fortuitous marriage of king ethelbert of kent to a princess bertha from a christian kingdom in what is now france ethelbert allowed bertha to worship freely and to bring along a bishop to see a restored see of canterbury pope gregory i chose augustine a high-ranking monk from the abbey of saint andrews in rome this is not to be confused with augustine of hippo the north african bishop and author of the confessions and the city of god to lead the mission to Canterbury. Having been granted permission by King Ethelbert to preach and travel freely in his kingdom, Augustine succeeded in re-establishing a Roman Catholic presence in England. However, the initial growth spurt of his mission was slowed down when expanding into the areas where the formerly isolated Christians had flourished into a rich spiritual tradition that differed greatly from Rome in both style and theology. Augustine and his missionaries clashed, with the political and church leaders in modern-day Wales, Ireland, and Scotland. But with the backing of the Pope, he eventually was able to overcome and bring these churches and the kingdoms in those areas back into the Roman Catholic fold, in many instances erasing their local traditions and style of worship, or at least minimizing them greatly. You might have heard of one such local tradition, Perhaps Celtic Christianity comes to mind. Now, a lot more could be said about this fascinating period in British history, but our purpose in visiting this era is to set up the stage for a tension that continued to exist in the British church between the local leadership and Rome for centuries to come. If this piques your interest, check out the podcast notes for further reading. We now fast forward to the fourteenth century when the kingdoms of England had been unified into, well, England, under the rule of a single monarch. Wales and Ireland were now both controlled by the English crown, and the centuries-long tensions between England and the Pope had at this point permeated the political, theological, and cultural landscape of the English church, and had become a powder keg that only needed the right spark in order to explode. This spark, of course, came in the form of Henry VIII in the early 1500s. In another very abbreviated account of events, Henry's claim to the throne came after a long period of time in English history known as the Wars of the Roses, and the common perception at the time was that Henry needed a male heir to the throne to solidify his dynasty. After the death of his brother Arthur, Henry married his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. This caused much anxiety among the nobles and the clergy, as it was perceived to be a violation of canon law or church law that a king would marry his brother's widow. Prompted by a complex web of political and familial alliances with both Catherine and Henry, Pope Leo X gave a papal dispensation for the marriage to occur. It is worth noting that up to this point, Henry was a very pious Roman Catholic, and aside from his stately duties as king, he was an avid theologian who often refuted Protestant theologians from continental Europe and would-be dissenters within the English Church. This fervor earned him the title of Defender of the Faith from Pope Leo X, a title that the monarch of England still bears to this day. This goodwill built between Henry and the Pope allowed Henry to continually push the boundaries when it came to issues regarding the king's authority over the church, and these overreaches were not at all endearing to Leo's successor, Clement VII. The fallout came when after several tragic miscarriages and the birth of his first daughter, Mary, Henry began to look outside his marriage for someone to provide him with an heir. Knowing that divorce was strictly prohibited by the Roman Catholic Church, Henry used his sharp theological mind to try to argue that his marriage to Catherine had not only been against canon law, which a pope can choose to overrule but that it was against the very teachings of the Bible and therefore was invalid and eligible for an annulment. Again, due in part to a complex web of allegiances and alliances, and in part to make a show of authority over the monarch, Pope Clement VII refused the request for annulment with great fanfare, humiliating the king. This was the last straw for Henry and it would become the inciting incident for what has come to be known as the English Reformation. Henry enlisted the help of his good friend and Protestant sympathizer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner, to begin a campaign of legitimizing Henry's claim to divine right as grounds for the rejection of papal authority. The argument went something like this. Since it was by God's will that Henry came to be the King of England, and it was his royal duty to preserve the welfare of his subjects, both material and spiritual, it should also be him, and not the Bishop of Rome, who should make the decisions regarding the Church in England. Still a devout Catholic in theology and style, Henry only sought to reform the ruling structure of the Church of England. but. He soon found the endeavor to be much like trying to remove a single card from a house of cards. Without the papal authority to hold together the Church in England, subjective theological interpretations, remaining allegiance to Rome, and the ever-growing presence of Luther's and Calvin's Protestant theology threatened to fracture the newly independent Church of England. In 1549, shortly after the death of Henry, Henry's son, Edward VI, passed the Act of Uniformity, officially sanctioning Cramner's Book of Common Prayer as the Church of England's official liturgical document. Cramner crafted this first book by putting together a slew of Roman liturgical documents like the Missal, which is the Liturgy for Holy Eucharist, the Breviary, that's the Daily Office, or as it was known at the time, the Liturgy of the Hours, the Manual, the pastoral offices like marriage, baptisms, funerals, and last rites, the lectionary, and the psalter. Henry and Cramner's vision for this Book of Common Prayer, as the title suggests, is that by standardizing the way in which the English church worshipped and prayed, there would be a sense of unity amongst the population despite competing theological and stylistic preferences. Due to Edward's youth and malleability, Cramner was able to make Several other major reforms to the British Church with regards to issues like clerical celibacy, the veneration of saints and icons, liturgical vestments, which led to the first revision of the BCP issued in 1552. This revision included more liturgical resources, including ordination services for priests and bishops, and Cramner's Six Articles, an early attempt at codifying the Church of England's theological commitments. Cramner's ambitions for a more Protestant Church of England, however, were quashed violently after Edward's death and the ascension of Mary I to the throne. You might know Queen Mary's lovely nickname, Bloody Mary, and the nickname was not unwarranted. In an attempt to return the Church of England to the Roman Catholic fold, Mary ordered the persecution of dissenters, executing or exiling any clergy who refused to renew their vows to Rome, or who were ordained during the time of the independent church. Cramner was one of the casualties of the persecution, despite having caved to the pressure to recant some of his convictions. Records of his execution have it that when he was burned at the stake, Cramner plunged his hand into the fire before it reached the rest of his body as an act of penance for having written recantations to the beliefs he still held on to inwardly. After Mary's death, her younger half-sister, Elizabeth I, was crowned queen, and she reversed Mary's reversion of Henry's and Edward's reforms. Being a much more sympathetic person than her older sibling, Elizabeth avoided systematic persecution and instead advocated for a settlement between the factions that existed within England's church, the aptly named Elizabethan Settlement that resulted in the formal separation of the Church of England from Rome and conferred the monarch of England the title Supreme Governor of the Church of England. As part of the settlement came a 1559 revision of the Book of Common Prayer which included liturgical and ecclesial concessions to both Protestants and Catholics, like removing prayers for the deliverance from the tyrant in Rome, and making the rubrics for services more open-ended, and a little easier to adapt for local preferences. It was during this time the Church of England gained its reputation as the Via Media, or Middle of the Road Church. In the new revision were also included the 39 Articles of Religion, which to this day remain the only confessional document of the Anglican tradition. But rather than outlining the specific theological positions of the church, they serve more as articulations of what the theological boundaries of the church were, with plenty of latitudes for different interpretations by Protestants and Catholics alike. Of course, as compromise often goes, the end result was that No one faction was completely satisfied with the concessions, and the roots of the next conflict were quietly growing under the surface of the consensus that existed until Elizabeth's death in 1603. Since Elizabeth had no heirs, the complicated mess that was England's royal line of succession dictated that the next heir was James VI, King of Scotland, who would now bear the not-at-all-confusing title of James VI and the First, King of England and Scotland. James continued his predecessor's more conciliatory approach to settling religious disagreements and allowed the Church of Scotland to create their own version of the BCP in 1604, which included the removal of the compulsory crossing of oneself, bowing at the name of Jesus, and changes in the wording and phrasing of parts of the Holy Eucharist liturgy, among others. Sadly, however, by the time James's reign was coming to an end, the number of factions that existed within the Church, combined with growing discontent on all sides, doomed the reconciliation effort to failure sooner or later, and failed it did, when James's son, Charles I, took the throne in 1625 and completely scrapped his father's conciliatory approach. As an avowed high-church Anglo-Catholic, Charles offered no concession to the English or Scottish Protestants and tried to coerce them into adopting his vision for the theology and worship For the church by force. Charles had a similar philosophy when it came to political matters, so maybe it comes as no surprise that by 1642 the parliaments of England and Scotland launched a civil war against him. The civil war in England culminated in Charles's arrest and execution at the hands of Oliver Cromwell in 1648 who then declared himself Lord Protector of the British Isles over a proto-Constitutional Republican government. Cromwell's reign in the UK saw an extreme level of persecution against Catholics or anything even remotely resembling Catholicism, including Anglo-Catholics. This resulted in the abolition of bishops, changing the Church's governance to a Presbyterian model of leadership, Once the brutal war of conquest in Ireland was won, the new Parliament under Cromwell's Protectorate was unable to achieve any consensus on how to move forward in peacetime, and members of Parliament that sympathized with the Crown offered the Crown to Cromwell. Cromwell refused the title, but took on many of the trappings of monarchy, including the naming of his son Richard as his successor. However, after only one year as Lord Protector, Richard was deposed by Parliament, who at this point viewed the title of Lord Protector as a distinction without a difference from a constitutional monarchy and viewed Richard's rule as illegitimate. So they restored Charles I's son, Charles II, to the monarchy in 1660. With the restoration of the monarchy and the episcopate, that is, the rule of bishops, the twelve surviving bishops of the Church of England met with the leaders of the short-lived Presbyterian Church of England to craft what would become the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Great care was taken with this new BCP that the exact wording of portions of the liturgy and the rubrics were open-ended enough for differing theological convictions to be respected but also specific enough that that there was still a recognizable unity in the prayer and worship of the national church. The Protestant-leaning Presbyterians also insisted that the liturgy be stripped down to only those parts which could be traced back to the early church, and that anything added to the liturgy by the Roman Catholic Church in later centuries should be removed. While they were not totally successful at ensuring this concession, some changes were made that leaned in that direction and it planted a seed for a value that continues to be an important part of Anglican liturgical life, liturgical research and scholarship. Under this principle, minor revisions of the 1662 BCP were made since then as new liturgical discoveries and translations of scripture become available but it remained the official version of the BCP for the Church of England until the year 2000, when the Church of England stopped using a single Book of Common Prayer and developed Common Worship, a family of volumes which, together with the Book of Common Prayer, make up the official liturgical resource of the Church of England. But despite our fascination with the Royal Family, the Beatles, and a myriad of other British things, we don't live in the UK, so we still must look at how the BCP continued to develop here in the US when the Episcopal Church of the United States of America was founded. The American colonies had a very different religious landscape than England since the Anglican Church was not the only form or even the largest form of Christianity in the colonies as it was in England. The history of the BCP in the US is not quite as tied to political developments as it was in the UK. However, it was pretty intertwined with one specific political event, and I'm sure you can guess which one. There were faithful Anglicans in the U.S. at the time of the American War for Independence, and the clergy in the colonies were in a difficult position. Since they had all been ordained in England, and as part of the ordination vow they had sworn allegiance to the crown, many of them felt it would be a violation of their conscience to support the revolutionary movement, which caused a large portion of them to flee back to Great Britain. It was during this time, and out of necessity for leadership due to the shortage of clergy, that the American churches borrowed the concept of a vestry from the neighboring Protestant denominations. A board of well-respected members of a congregation would run the day-to-day functions of the church, while a priest would provide over the sacraments, like baptism and Holy Communion, but usually for several different churches. It wasn't uncommon for churches to gather for morning prayer most Sundays, and only celebrate the Eucharist when a priest was available once every couple of weeks. Eventually, the USA won the war for independence, and was now a sovereign nation, and this caused somewhat of a debate amongst the bishops in England. They saw the remaining clergy in America as valid, despite their rebellion to the crown, Because now that the United States was a sovereign nation, they argued that forcing them to be religiously dependent on the Church of England would be the same as when the Church of England was beholden to the Pope. However, the king had forbidden them from consecrating a bishop or any new clergy for the U.S., and the churches in America were unable to ordain them by themselves since they lacked a bishop of their own to do the ordaining. Furthermore, it was unclear how any new bishops were to be appointed since in England it was the House of Bishops who nominated new candidates and the monarch who approved them. Once again, borrowing from neighboring denominations, the American church developed the convention system where clergy representatives and later lay representatives would gather to decide on important issues for the church as a whole by voting. Through one such meeting, ten priests elected Samuel Seabury to be sent to Scotland to be consecrated a bishop. The Episcopal Church of Scotland, which had attained a higher level of independence from the Crown relative to the Church of England, had extended this offer in solidarity with the Americans and against the King's wishes. It was partially due to this kindness that, in a symbolic gesture of gratitude, the Church in the United States later came to name herself the Episcopal Church in the United States of America instead of simply the Church of the United States of America. Side note, as mentioned before, Episcopal means of the bishops, and the Scottish Church had adopted that label for herself to distinguish from the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, who at this point in history was larger in size and influence. By 1787, the king had lifted his ban on the consecration of American bishops, and two more bishops, William White and Samuel Provost, were consecrated for the United States. With finally enough bishops to be self-sustaining, the American church gathered in the first general convention in 1789, where a new constitution was written for the Episcopal Church in the United States. New bishops were consecrated for the newly formed diocese, and a new Book of Common Prayer was commissioned. The 1789 Book of Common Prayer was baffling in its diversity of theological language. It reintroduced explicit sacrificial language in the Eucharistic prayer, which aligned the Church's Eucharistic theology more closely to that of the Roman Catholic and Orthodox Churches. However, it also heavily borrowed language from the Scottish BCP, which was much more theologically Protestant than the 1662 Book of Common Prayer from England. This bizarre mixture of theological language gave us instances like in our Eucharistic prayer where we say things like we offer these your holy gifts and sanctify them by your Holy Spirit, which are more Catholic things to say, but also we say things like We celebrate the memorial of our redemption and to be, for us, the body and blood of Christ, which are much more Protestant statements, but they're all in the same prayer. Also, continuing the trend from the 1662 BCP, new liturgical and biblical scholarship also helped to shape the new Book of Common Prayer in ways that distinguished it from its predecessors, one example being the addition of Prayers for the Dead in the Burial Liturgy, which did not exist in the 1662 or the Scottish BCP. There were new revisions to the American BCP in 1892 and 1928, which were relatively minor and they only changed some wording and phrasing here and added or removed some prayers or responses there. It wasn't until 1979 that a new, major revision would come. In the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is still the one we use, the overwhelming amount of new liturgical and biblical scholarship that had been developed since 1928 caused Episcopalians of all persuasions, Anglo-Catholic and Protestant alike, to feel alienated by the major changes that were to come. In part due to this controversy, and in part due to the discovery of several ancient liturgies, the 1979 BCP was the first to include multiple options for the Holy Eucharist Liturgy. Rite 1 is a relatively faithful adaptation of the 1928 Liturgy, and Rite 2 not only contains modernized English, it also features four Eucharistic prayers. These were not totally new innovations. The liturgical research that led to the 1979 prayer book was done not only by Episcopalian scholars but also by Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Lutheran scholars who similarly introduced some of their discoveries to their own traditions to be used in addition to their official liturgies. However, the 1979 BCP was the first to develop a system where multiple liturgies were offered as equally valid and equally official and the philosophy of liturgy changed from strict adherence to standardized language to unity in the shape of the liturgy, but rather freedom in the specifics. That is to say, whereas today you may go to an Episcopal church that uses a totally different liturgy, and maybe they sing parts of it rather than speaking them, and they might stand or kneel or do both, the overall components of the liturgy remain similar enough to be recognizable the public reading of Scripture in the Gospel, the Confession, the Peace, the words of institution during the Eucharistic prayer, etc. We will explore all these concepts much more in depth in future episodes where we begin to dive into our BCP specifically. For a series that is ostensibly, about our BCP. It might feel odd that we didn't get into it until the very end, but I hope you now have a greater appreciation for the centuries of history that have shaped our tradition and our prayer. The BCP is so much more than just an order of service. It's a record of what those who came before us believed, and it's a foundation on which we today can put into words what we believe. It's a resource for spiritual formation, helping us pray when we don't know what to say, and teaching us to worship when our minds or our emotions get in the way of spontaneous expressions of faith. It's a solace for those who feel wearied or who are doubting their faith since it teaches us that it is our community's faith that holds us up during the times our own faith might not be strong enough. And it's a tool through which we come together with Christians across the nation and across the world and say together in one voice, that we are the Church, even when our actions might sadly say otherwise. The Episcopal Church today, and the Anglican Communion in general, that is, all the churches around the world that originated from the Church of England, face a difficult task in uniting so many people with so many different historical and cultural backgrounds, theological convictions, and worship preferences and styles. Some worry that it might not even be possible without either the strict hierarchy of a pope or the total freedom afforded by non-denominational churches. How can such a chasm be bridged? Our answer in this tradition hails back to Cramner's answer in 1549, a church who prays together, stays together. Of course, we're fallen humans. Already, we have suffered painful separations in our church due to social and theological disagreements. Praying together is a monumentally difficult task, but the fact that even the churches that have split away still use a BCP that shares at least some similarities to ours, as ours does to the Church of England's, tells us that somewhere, in the noise of human conflict and bitterness, there are sweet notes harmonizing with one another. And that should give us hope that one day, through these small instances of praying together, we will see the church worshiping God truly as one.